0: You may be seated. I'm going to very carefully use your music stand, Nathaniel. Good evening. Let me pray for our time together, looking at God's word. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you on this solemn evening remember the death of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would comfort those who are afflicted, and Lord, possibly even afflict those who are too comfortable. Father, we dedicate this time to you and to your glory. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit of the sufferings of your Son. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It goes without saying that in this life, we will all face suffering of one kind or another. I have a good friend, friend of the family, and he's a counselor and a professor of counseling, and he's been doing it for 30 years. And and I've heard him say many times that in a room this size... If you knew everybody's stories, if you knew all of their secret hurt and pain, if you knew all the suffering in the room, it would be almost too much to bear. It would just level you. So tonight, even as we're approaching Easter, many of you are probably bringing some suffering into this room with you. Maybe it's a broken relationship, a personal failure, physical pain, illness. Whether it's something that seems just catastrophic or whether it's something that seems kind of small or kind of trivial to you. It's your suffering and it's real. So tonight, we do something kind of bizarre. We come together, Christians all over the world, to remember in a sense, to reenact, to celebrate the suffering, the crucifixion and death of a man who lived 2,000 years ago. So why do we do this? Why do we do this? We do this because it shows us something beautiful about who our God is and about the gospel that we believe on Good Friday, we see with power and clarity that Jesus Christ walked this road of suffering before us. And we see that Jesus transforms our suffering into praise. So this set of texts that we've just read together, this beautiful network of scripture, This allows us to kind of enter into this story with Christ and walk along this path with him. I'm going to be focusing on Psalm 22, but we'll be making references to the other text as we go. So this song was written by King David. And we know that King David was often, often in dire straits, but we don't know the historical circumstance that caused him to write this psalm. We don't know what trial or suffering that he was facing. ...when he wrote these words. And perhaps that's because David is prophetically pointing to the suffering of Christ. See, David was Israel's greatest king. And God made a promise, a covenant to David, ...that David was going to have a son who would reign on Israel's throne forever. And maybe you picked it up, uh, if you've read through the Gospel of John, or you were listening closely this evening, that that's a a big deal for John, this idea that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So, Jesus is David's physical descendant, and he's the king of the Jews. And so, in this way, for 2,000 years, Christians have been reading the words of this psalm onto the lips of Christ. It's kind of amazing. All four Gospels, all four Gospels quote Psalm 22 when they tell the story of the crucifixion. So in Matthew and Mark, we learn that on the cross, Jesus himself quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Luke and John, they both quote verse 18. When they talk about the way the Roman soldiers cast lots to divide up Jesus' soul possession, or, to, or rather, not to divide up Jesus' soul possession, a single piece of cloth. The message of this psalm comes true for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus transforms our suffering to praise. But what does that mean? what does that actually mean that Jesus transforms our suffering to praise well whatever suffering you're experiencing no matter how great or small you can take it to Christ because he took it to the cross perhaps when I began some source of suffering sprang into your mind even this evening even today Hold that in your head as we look back at Psalm 22. The anguish of this psalm is extreme. It uses the most vivid of figurative language to portray really an absolute level of suffering. But notice that it's not merely physical suffering. It's emotional and spiritual suffering as well. So in the first verse, Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a spiritual abandonment here, an absence of his father. But there's a broader relational abandonment too. If you look at verses 6 and 7 of the psalm, the whole community has not only abandoned him, but they've actually turned against him. They've become his adversaries. And there's a level of social shame that goes along with this that leads them to cry like, I'm a worm, I'm less than human. Jesus experienced racist mockery at the hands of the Roman soldiers and an almost incomprehensible hatred bent on his destruction from his own people. Many times if you're going through deep suffering or grief, it's the people around us that make all the difference. I mean, imagine dealing with a terminal illness or the death of a loved one. Or even a minor catastrophe like a failed job interview or the flu and going through it completely alone. It's a, level, it's a level of suffering that we're really just not designed to bear. The psalmist talks about this in verse 11. Trouble is near and there is none to help. This is a reality that can ruin us. If you're lonely if you're isolated, if you're dealing with loss, if you're dealing with a sense of shame, know that Christ took that suffering to the cross. But obviously the cross is not simply emotional suffering. The flogging and beating that Jesus received in the Gospels would have been excruciating physical suffering as well leaving muscles and bones exposed. The psalmist says, "...the crowd stare and gloat over me. I can count all of my bones." And this pain is intensified, I think, through trauma. In Psalm 22, it describes bulls and lions that represent the symbols of the unstoppable forces of nature that are kind of closing in on you. These are the animals that you just cannot fight against, right? If you're caught in their jaws, it's like a vice just trapping you. There's no fight-or-flight response anymore. For Christ, Pilate and the Jewish leaders represent these kind of unstoppable worldly powers closing in around him. The Roman soldiers are like the dogs. They're like the scavengers on the edge of society that are benefiting off of the death of others, circling to devour the weak. And then there's that strange detail that John gives us near the end. Verse 28, Jesus says, I thirst. It says it fulfills the scripture. My guess is that it's Psalm 2215. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. The physical anguish of the crucifixion is a slow death from exposure open wounds, and asphyxiation. If you're dealing with physical illness, if you're in pain this evening, if you feel the forces of the world closing in around you, forces that you cannot fight against so that you feel out of control, know that Christ took your suffering to the cross. There are incredible stories of the links that black slaves used to go to in this country to worship Christ. Excluded from white churches and often forbidden to meet together, they resorted to clandestine gatherings and fellowships for preaching and singing. They held secret church services anywhere that they could get away from the watchful eye of their masters. Consequences for these infractions were often severe, a former slave named Charlotte Martin recounts how her oldest brother was whipped to death when he was caught stealing away to attend a secret church service. What could possibly compel these slaves to take to go to those links to take those kinds of risks? in fact, far from dampening their spirits, it seemed that the torturous environment that they lived under actually gave rise to spiritual songs and a living hope. So what could compel them? One first-person account says this. Once everyone had arrived, they would first ask each other how they were all feeling. Preaching and prayer and singing would then follow until generally all felt quite happy. During this experience, the sufferings of the previous week would seem to temporarily vanish. The staggering irony is that the God, that these slaves went to such lengths to worship, was the God that their their slave masters, their oppressors had introduced them to. And yet, in this God, in Jesus Christ, they found a God who could relate to their sufferings. Isaiah calls him despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Whatever suffering you're experiencing, no matter how great or small, you can take it to Christ because he took it to the cross. But how then does Jesus' suffering transform your suffering? How does it lead to praise? His suffering transforms our suffering because it's the source of eternal salvation. See, it's not enough just to have a God who relates to our suffering if he can't do anything about it. But see, these slaves recognized in themselves... A sin and a weakness and a suffering that would ultimately destroy them. But they recognized in Christ a weakness and a suffering that would ultimately destroy sin. You see, suffering actually has a purifying aspect to it, it reveals your true character, doesn't it? In the book of Isaiah, the wrath of God is often compared to a consuming fire that just destroys and gobbles up and consumes everything that's impure that's in its path if you or I go through that fire that fire of suffering it would burn off all the dross of impurity and sin and there wouldn't be anything left but just a pile a pile of ash but something radically different happens when Christ walks through that fire. Isaiah says that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, and that the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. It's like he took on all our sin and our brokenness like a burden, like he he was carrying it. And then carrying that burden, he walked through that fire of God's wrath. And emerged clean and pure because there was no dross. There were no impurities in him to be burnt off. He was God's perfect son. But our sins, our iniquities were gone forever. Burned up entirely. Through his incredible suffering, his innocent suffering, he was able to give his own life as an offering in our place. So on the cross, Jesus' last words are, It is finished. This clearly echoes the last words of Psalm 22 He has done it. But what has He done? Well, look at Psalm 22. This affirmation circles back to verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Now, listen again to how Hebrews relates this to Christ. Chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He willingly undertook this suffering for us. He bore this burden for us. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. See, on the cross, God did two things. He suffered in our place, bearing the burden of the world. And at the same time, He showed us that He will never abandon us in our suffering. And this is how He transforms suffering to praise. Did you notice that in Psalm 22, it kind of gets blacker and blacker until in verses 15 to 17, Christ, David, the poet, describes his own death. But then something incredible happens. There's a pivot, a pivot to trust and praise. In verses 19 to 21, he cries out for help. And then in verse 21, to the end of the psalm, it is just pure praise. So this guy, who just described his own death, is now praising God in the future tense. This dead man, who's just endured this incredible suffering, is praising God the Lord see the eternal salvation that he wins for us it's not just a hope of resurrection or a hope to escape death in the future although we do have faith that we will be delivered from death this eternal salvation is a quality of life that actually reaches back from beyond the grave to transform your experience of suffering today, now. Have you ever reflected on the fact that we call it Good Friday? The very name of this High Holy Day implies this complete change of perspective. There's a guy named uh, Jocko Willink. He's an ex-Navy SEAL. And he's kind of become uh, a leadership consultant, and he has a podcast. And he's got this mantra, this kind of personal philosophy of life that he learned in his training as a Navy SEAL that I think perfectly encapsulates this change of perspective. He has committed himself... Whenever he faces any kind of challenge or catastrophe, I mean, whether it's a training exercise or the live battlefield, he has committed himself to responding with one word. Good. Fired, well, didn't get the high-tech gear we wanted? Good. We'll keep it simple. Didn't get promoted? Good. More time to get better. Got injured? Good. Needed a break from training. At the foot of the cross, we can take this and we can transform it into something that draws us closer to Christ. Fired from my job? Good. I get to learn humility and trust in Christ. Living with a physical disability? Good, I get to show my friends and family what it looks like to rejoice in Christ. Not where I want to be in life. Good, I get to learn patience and find my home in Christ. Struck down by illness, good. I can rest in God's sovereignty. Reeling from the death of a dream, good. I get to deal with my idols and learn to trust only in God. That might border on sounding flippant. It would be flippant if Christ had not walked this way of suffering before us. You see, this was the attitude of our Savior as he went to the cross. He embraced the suffering set before Him for our eternal salvation. And that is what transforms your suffering to joy. The most beautiful account of death and suffering that I know is in a book called A Severe Mercy. Maybe some of you know it. It's a memoir, and it tells the story of the romance of Sheldon and Davy Van Auken, and then of their unexpected and late conversion to Christianity, and then of the equally unexpected and late death of Davy. Or early death, I should say. In her late thirties, she contracted a liver disease, a virus that would just slowly but surely destroy destroy her liver. And it was a slow but certain decline over months and months that were filled with blood transfusions and cortisone and foggy pain and coma and and months spent in the hospital. But through it all, Sheldon writes, that there was a hope that was springing up between us, a hope that came out of love. Not long after she arrived in the hospital, they got a package from one of their dearest friends who was himself an Anglican priest in England. And the package contained his most prized possession, a priceless, hand-carved medieval crucifix that she kept with her by her bedside from then on. Students from their ministry would come and and sit with her to try to encourage her and comfort her, and they would leave comforted and encouraged. Time and again, in the middle of the night, against doctor's orders, nurses would find her out of bed, caring for other patients, praying for them. Her ministry and her joy during the time that she was in the hospital was so compelling, so overwhelming, that the hospital and the doctor's would eventually refuse all forms of payment for the months and months of care that they had given her. They said that she had done more for them, more for their nurses and their patients, than they could ever do for her. Sheldon would come every day and wheel her out into the veranda and they would read letters together, letters from friends, old journal entries, poems, drink tea. And Davy would exclaim to anybody who happened to be passing by, this is the high point of my day. What happiness we had together, Sheldon wrote, even under that death sentence. When the day finally came and Davy did die, Sheldon went home, so said he sat down and wrote over 60 letters to people who'd been praying for and encouraging them throughout the time. And he closed each one with Davy's own words. All shall be most well. Our salvation comes through the cross. So it won't be easy It certainly won't be without suffering and pain. But at the end of all things, it will truly be okay because He has done it. That proclamation, it is finished. He has done it. That's what allows you to walk the path of suffering behind your Savior. That's what transforms suffering to praise. It is finished. He has done it. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you even in the suffering in our lives. Lord, we praise you because you were not above taking on our suffering yourself, walking this path with us. Father, we praise you and we thank you for this. Lord, transform our suffering to praise. We are trusting in you. Amen.